Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Victorin, and I'm Pierre Valencien. During the first months of the pandemic, governments worldwide agreed that following the science with hard lockdowns and vaccine mandates was the best way to preserve life. But evidence is mounting that the science was all politics, and time reveals the horrific human and economic costs of these policies. How do we talk about this evidence, and how do we account for the politics when much of the world seems to have moved on, as of in denial of the events? In the book, The COVID Consensus, Toby Green and Thomas Fatsi recount in painstaking detail the story which saw most of the world following the same untested playbook. They also provide an account of the costs of lockdowns and other non-medical interventions on populations around the world. The story is horrific, to say the least, and making sense of it is uncomfortable, so much so that some of it begins to sound a little like conspiracy theorizing. No wonder then, that so many commentators have shunned the analysis of the century's most significant event. However, Green and Fatsi argue that it is not a sustainable strategy. Even in the days around the recording and editing of this episode, we have seen the release of reports arguing for the ineffectiveness of mask mandates, confirming the lab leak theory, and in the UK, uncovering staggering collusion between government and media. As ever, you'll find links to some of the items we discuss in the show notes. From there, you can also join my newsletter with my writing and art and culture, as well to support my work. Welcome to Conspirators Corner, Toby. Thank you very much, Pierre. Thomas. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I say conspiracy partly in jest because the last time I did that, an episode I recorded and released, I uh, had about four times as many listeners as any other. So maybe <laughs> this is just you know, good, good billing. But also because I think the subject matter <laughs> we're going to address here cannot avoid conspiracy. And your book has been subject to a whole debunking episode by another podcast, which we maybe will get to mm-hmm. towards the end. So that will have to stay with us. But maybe to begin to kind of clear ourselves of this sin, I will ask for your credentials. The book on its cover 
as the phrase, a critique from the left. Mm. So what are your leftist credentials and for, for sure. writing and thinking about COVID? Well, I'm a historian of inequality. So my previous book, Fistful of Shells, subtitle uh, West Africa from the Rise of the Slave Trade to the Age of Revolution, was about the long period during the era of the transatlantic slave trade in which West Africa, West African economic history and West Africa's capital base was undermined through, uh, the, trans through the transatlantic trade. Mm -hmm. And it was about the way in which that undermined the capacity for investment and industrial development in the 19th century. And, and it, was, it was fundamentally taking really a kind of neo-Marxist view of capital and the way in which that was linked to international trade mm -hmm. and seeing that as a framework for understanding economic disparities as they grew in that era. Now, this book was, by most lights, a success. Uh, it, it won the British Academy's Prize for Global Cultural Understanding. It won the American Historical Association's Prize for World History, the Jerry Bentley Prize. It won the Historical Writers Association uh, Nonfiction Crown. It was, this was a book which was well-received by mm -hmm. uh, academics on the left. It was well received by academics because it had a leftist critique of the development of capital and the way in which capital had influenced the evolution of African history. That's one side. The other side, I spent the last 10 or 15 years working with colleagues all across the African continent, Angola, Ghana, Guinea-Bissau, Sierra Leone, on a whole range of different projects. I really have done the internationalist work of uh, mutual uh, reciprocal uh, knowledge uh, debates and dialogue. And, and that's something which... I think all the colleagues in my field will recognise and know, and, and maybe one of the reasons why I haven't come in for much criticism from colleagues in my field about the work I've been doing mm -hmm. on COVID. Right. Okay. Um, same question to you, Thomas. I mean, we've, we met on the pages of a magazine called Compact, which mm. I think puts us in a, in a category already. Yeah. Well, I mean, things are a bit complicated nowadays, but I mean, they were easier 20 years ago when... Uh, when I got involved in politics. So mm -hmm. I had my political baptism of fire in the anti-globalization movement of mm -hmm. the late 90s and early 2000s uh, when I was coming of age. And that was very much a um, left-wing movement, anarchist-esque uh, movement, but you know with heavier socialist influences as well. So I grew up in that environment and, and that's, uh, that's where I developed my political outlook, which has always been a socialist one, a democratic socialist outlook. Uh, that hasn't changed as far as, uh, as mm -hmm. far as I'm concerned. I mean, my, you know, my, my views haven't changed that much over, over the years in terms of, you know, what I consider to be the kind of society we should strive towards. I've uh, got involved in writing and journalism around uh, 12, 13 years ago mainly with a focus on economics, mm -hmm. especially at some point, especially on the heels of the um, of the financial crisis and especially the euro crisis. I realized that even though I'd always been involved in politics, I didn't really have a grasp of, of what was happening. And I realized that that's because I didn't, I'd never really studied economics. And so I kind of went, did, did a deep dive into economics for a few years and kind of emerged uh, with uh, what, what I thought was an understanding, at least of what had happened in the context of the euro crisis. And that's how my first book came about, mm -hmm. The Battle for Europe which was a um, kind of a progressive critique of the, the response that European elites uh, uh, had given to, to that crisis, you know, through the austerity measures and structural adjustment programs and, and so on. 
already in that book, I started developing a quite a radical critique of the European Union mm. and the Euro. For those that don't know, I, I'm, I'm half English, half Italian, uh, but I've lived in Italy all my life. As people probably uh, know, I mean, Italy was especially hardly hit yeah. by the financial crisis and the subsequent Euro crisis. And so that clearly informed my, my, my view. And so I, I became very, very critical of the, of the European Union, especially of the monetary union. And I radicalized, um, I mean, that my, my critique got you know, more and more radical over the years in the sense that I came to the conclusion that, um, especially after what happened in Greece in 2015, mm -hmm. and that, that the European Union was not reformable, which is something that I, I, I was still hoping for at the beginning. And so that kind of informed what was my second book, which I co-wrote with uh, the Australian economist Bill Mitchell, mm -hmm. called Reclaiming the State. And already in that book, I started um, becoming at odds with the mainstream left. Mm -hmm. As we you know, the, not just the British left, but even the European continental left tends to have uh, quite a generous view of the European Union. At best, you know, they'll be Eurocritical and say, yeah, mm -hmm. we have to change it, we have to reform it. And instead, my, 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 my view was much more critical. And in fact, that, that whole book was about, you know, tr trying to offer a different perspective on a kind of populist uprising of the you know, late 2010s. Uh, so Brexit, Trump, and so on, through the lens of national sovereignty, which most of the left uh, at the time already had quite a negative view on of. And instead, in the book, we tried to develop, you know, a positive, you know, progressive, uh, from our perspective at least, you know, view of national sovereignty as the only vehicle through which you know, social change can, can be achieved and democracy can be exercised. And uh, so I'd already kind of become kind of estranged from the mainstream left, you know, for my views about the European Union and the Euro. And I wrote a lot about pro-Brexit pieces from a left perspective uh, at the time of the Brexit debate, you know. So in a way, you know, when I when, when we ended up writing this book, by this point, you know, uh, I was accustomed to, you know, to be quite, you know, as I said, estranged from uh, from the mainstream left's view on a lot of issues. And of course, you know, the, the, the gap just kind of <laughs> exploded with COVID. Uh, but, but again, you know, the way I see it, it's not my views that have changed. It's, a, it's the left that has uh, completely yeah. abandoned. I mean, if I could just uh, uh, d d d double off that, mm -hmm. in that for me... Um, I was already, although I haven't written, I hadn't written at all about, you know, political issues in the West. I, you know, I'm a historian of West Africa, and uh, but the, the experiences I, I had had over the previous 10, 15 years working with colleagues in Africa, on the one hand, and, and experiences in the general society in which we live in the West, on the other, mm -hmm. had maybe extremely disenchanted with the mainstream left. And I had no, I had absolutely no optimism that genuine progressive change would come from the mainstream left here because of the way in which it was completely separated from the daily reality of, 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 of you know, the vast majority of the world's population and seemed to have absolutely no interest in it, as we saw during the COVID pandemic. Well, so... I mean, this has been really useful. We've either lost half of our audience already or we've given the rest of the conversation some credibility now. <laughs> um, but the question is, why, why write a book on COVID? We're recording this pretty much on the anniversary of the official end of COVID, which was the escalation of the Russian invasion um, on Ukraine, which pretty much turned, turned news coverage away from, from the pandemic, at least in some parts of the world. And it seems to me that with things like in the UK, the ongoing, or rather the beginning public inquiry, which of course will take forever and will be, you know, soft in itself and very general, um, and the ongoing scandals in procurement of PPE, mm. I think, don't we have this kind of covered? What is the critique, really? Who's got the energy? Well, I'm not sure I've got that much more energy left to critique COVID because <laughs> I've spent the last two and a half years critiquing it. I mean, I think, well, the, f the first thing we've done is, is, is 
look at the narrative which was constructed around COVID in, and how what, what we call mm. a single scientific narrative was developed and how, uh, and how this was actually in a complete contradiction to the scientific method because there wasn't debate, there wasn't experimentation, there was complete uh, transformation of the, a scientific consensus around a topic in a handful of days with no uh, huge amount of new evidence to go on and certainly no experimentation of that. So we, we, we set that up. And then what we really provide in the book is an alternative narrative. Mm -hmm. It's an alternative narrative of how science operated uh, and, and the broader reasons why society cohered around that narrative, which date back to many of the issues we've already talked about in terms of the direction of neoliberalism and how that mm -hmm. had changed society, created a revolving door between business and government. So w we set up an alternative narrative, which we both feel anybody who has any critical engagement with the social transformation of the last few years has to consider, has to look at. When we consider you know, the enormous increases in inequality, radical capital accumulation, development of authoritarian capitalism, we have one narrative, which we identify in the book, which was the mainstream narrative, and we're providing another, and we, we think that it's really fundamental to look at look at that. Oh yeah, well, should we should we try to do that a little bit? I know it's going to be a bit of a drawn out process, and you've done that. The book is both exhaustive and exhausting, not yeah. because of how it's written, but because of what it is about and the amount of detail that you go into and the kind of wide purview that includes the UK and the US, and but also a lot of the developing world in, in, in quite a lot of detail. I don't think we can hope to or even should try to cover any of this, but I think it would be interesting to set a star stall and get get some of the kind of slightly unacknowledged elements on, on the table. So before before we started recording, you you mentioned pandemic preparedness plans mm. in that the all sorts of countries have had before 2020, before 2019 even, and also the precedence of um, SARS and H1N1 pandemics, which have suffered some of the same kind of fates of scientific misfiring as, mm -hmm. as COVID did, albeit on a much smaller scale. So maybe I could ask you to, to try to set up wh where it is that you think things start going wrong. So that might help us to try to figure out, you know, at, who, at whose door we should be knocking mm. for answers mm. i mean you could go as far back as the end of the cold war i think that was a moment which threw western elites in, into a crisis suddenly the great enemy that had given you know purpose and motivation to the west and also unity to the west uh, the soviet union and communism more in general uh, disappeared and i think that kind of revealed the void the kind of you know, ideological and even spiritual void of uh, of Western politics in many ways. I think in in that context, I think increasingly politicians realized that there wasn't an ideological well that they could draw from, you know, to create you know, a positive consensus, a positive view of the world, uh, especially considering that that's also the time at which, you know, the living alternative to capitalism in the form of the Soviet Union had disappeared, you know, Western political economic elites also got bolder. And so they, they realized that they could start pushing for a much more aggressive form of capitalism. And so uh, not only, you know, were they in a condition where, you know, there was this, you know, kind of ideological void, but, you know, the kind of capitalism that they were developing was also increasingly unable to produce even just material consensus. Uh, you know, we're talking about kind of the beginning of the neoliberal counter-revolution. Counter I think in this context, 
they realized that one way of cementing their rule and their, and their power is not through consensus anymore. It's not through some kind of class compromise. It's through fear. I think one of the few people to really encapsulate this, this notion was uh, uh, Adam Curtis, the director, in that masterpiece of a documentary um, that is The Power of Nightmares. Mm. Uh, I think that's a 2004 documentary. And it's actually called The Rise of the Politics of Fear. And he explains how, uh, and I largely agree, that the, res the response to 9-11 was a great example of this, you know, was the, the, you know, a blueprint for this new politics of fear. You know, the creation of a, a kind of a Hollywood-esque almost narrative of, you know, this, this, this sleeper cells in every country, you know, this kind of international uh, uh, terrorism specter that's out to get the West. I mean, we know that that was mostly a fiction. That's pretty clear now, I think. Now, of course, now the notion of conventional war with, a, with another great power, you know, was this, had disappeared. And so, you know, terrorism as this new threat, you know, through which to uh, control people and kind of, you know, pummel them into uh, submission, uh, I think, came about. And, and already we see the role of, of health, I think, very early on in the way that terrorism you know, immediately becomes intertwined with the notion of bioterrorism. So the notion of the, you know, the, the potential weaponization of viruses, and of course, you know, I mean, the whole anthrax affair mm. was uh, an obvious example of that. And so I think that, that's, you know, that, that's, that's when we start to see the rise of this new paradigm. And I think throughout the following years, um, this has been dominant paradigm. And I think this has been the mode of governance that Western elites have developed to just kind of manage societies and control societies and in fact in many respects if, if we look back at the past 20 years you know we've gone from the you know the, the terrorism crisis to uh, you know financial financial slash economic crisis uh, to various other crises some more localized you know the migration crises I mean, we've been through all sorts of uh, of, uh, of of crises you know and so and so the pandemic you know in a way wasn't it wasn't something completely new uh, so I think it was a radicalization of processes that were already um, underway in this respect. And this is really important, actually, because I think that's one of the narratives of our book is that actually the pandemic saw the continuity of many processes. Yeah. So whereas, you know, what he said, this is a completely unprecedented mm. event. There's nothing unprecedented about pandemics, of course, but there's going to be an unprecedented event which calls for an unprecedented response. Uh, and it's all about science. Actually, what we're, we are, you know, we've trained in writing about history, writing about economics and politics and and actually the continuities, as Thomas has just explained, are absolutely there in the political response. Continuities are there in terms of the expansion of inequality, in terms of the role of information slash misinformation. All these things are radical continuities. The role, the role of the internet, our, our addiction to uh, communication on screens, all these things are radically increased. So the question becomes, was this all about science or do these historical and political keystones of the previous 20 years and their radical acceleration suggest that there are much broader issues at stake in the type of response which emerged. And I think another really important point is that, you know, linking this to national security and politics, as Thomas did in his answer about pandemics, also helps to explain why <coughs> the pandemic's preparedness plans maybe were, were thrown out of the window. Well, they were thrown out of the window. So the question is, why were they thrown out of the window? Well, they were thrown out of the window because this was actually a political question. They were thrown out of the window because these were political continuities which were radically accelerating uh, and you know I've spoken to people who've been were very involved in previous pandemic planning who said you know that they had they had as a standard that you know if there were a serious pandemic in the UK 300,000 people might die and that was just 
that was the standard, that was the accepted view. Nobody accused yeah. them of being completely heartless, wanting to kill Granny and so on. Mm -hmm. That was just how pandemic planning went. It was thrown out of the window for, as Thomas suggested. Is that, this is something I've been actually kind of looking at. Uh, I, well, something didn't get to look at that much in a book, and I've been kind of investigating it uh, more in depth since we wrote it. And it is the issue of how, you know, how bioterrorism then does kind of, kind of lose the terror but the, the bio threat remains. Yeah. And so you see the rise of what, you know, has been called, you know, health security or biosecurity, which begins to be linked to the notion that we are entering a new era of pandemics. And we already start hearing this talk of era of pandemics uh, already kind of very much in the early 2010s. And in fact, you know, some, some do also see that as a reaction to kind of the post-2008 crisis kind of global uprising. So in, in, uh, following the 2008 crisis, we do see a surge in kind of, you know, uh, anti-government demonstrations, strikes, you know, both in the West and in the, the developing Arab, the Arab world. Spring. The yeah. Arab Spring. I mean, yeah. there is that, this, I think, and so there's this idea that, you know, the global population is becoming increasingly unmanageable, you know, due as a result of the intrinsic contradictions of uh, global capitalism, especially in its neoliberal kind of uh, um, phase. And um, and in, the, in this context, we do start, you know, we see an acceleration in the, in the development of the, of no, of the notion of uh, health securities. And, and so we start to see the rise of all these uh, scenarios and exercises. Tabletop events. Tabletop events, which they, you know, which in the early 2000s were very much focused on bioterrorism. And you don't, you don't know where the preparedness ends and the scripting begins. You know, I think this is, you know, and, and here we might be veering into conspiracy, but I mean, I think this is a really important aspect. I mean, there's one document which is quite extraordinary and it's, the, it's a 2010 report by the Rockefeller Foundation mm. where they develop different scenarios. And one scenario does involve a global pandemic that explodes in China, uh, to which China responds through lockdown they were called uh, you know, um, mm -hmm. forceful quarantines or something. I mean, the term mm -hmm. lockdown didn't really exist at that time. But And then the rest of the world kind of copies China. And in the, the report, they kind of they explain how this leads to global authoritarian turn of aggressive top-down government, government policies. It leads to you know measures of much greater social control. And it also states how, interestingly, populations largely accept these policies. That, that That's the kind of scenario they develop. And, and, it, and it is strikingly similar to what did eventually come to happen in, in 2020 and I, th I think there are a lot of issues that ha necessarily have to be unpacked when we look at the you know this, this kind of you know this tabletop events the scenarios the exercises at the very least because you know through obsessively planning for these events you give rise to in this case kind of a pandemic preparedness complex or industry which uh, starts to depend on it. I mean, I'm speaking very bit. much for myself here because I don't <laughs> want to... Let's row back. I just to be clear, I mean, not, every, not everything I say we don't agree about must everything. be shared okay. yeah. by, by to Toby's or two different... I'm going to ask you a question so you can see how far we can row back from this kind of very compelling, but as you already suggested, slightly conspiratorial view. Because we're sitting in, a, in an office in an academic building. This is not an academic press book, but it is a book that is factual in and of itself. So I want to ask about how we go from the kind of generalist observation, which you know makes sense, and frankly, in the history of leftist critiques of the biosecurity, you know, the, the politics of fear, it's kind of astounding to me from, from the side to see that nobody is continuing with the same critiques, which used yeah. to be the bread and butter of critical departments yeah. on the left for, for a couple of decades. So how do we get to the point where we can actually put some evidence behind the claim that the event was political rather than a scientific? Mm. I think one thing we've seen quite clearly in the last three years is that, you know, science is political. 
science is political. I mean, that's not what we saw. We knew in the 70s. And we, and actually, yeah, I mean, there shouldn't earlier. be anything <laughs> controversial about that at all. You know, this idea of following the science, what does that mean? It's an empty slogan. You know, the, the writer Elias Canetti described slogans, uh, I think the etymology from the Gaelic was the battle cry of the dead. You know, <laughs> we have seen that, you know, so clearly. You know, science is political. That's the first point. And actually, as a historian of slavery, uh, or somebody who's worked a lot on the history of slavery, you know, it's absolutely vital to recognise that science is political because, and medicine is political because it comes out of the history of colonial power, actually, in, uh, you know, in, in colonial Africa. So, for example, uh, vaccine programmes, the oral polio vaccine, which were developed in the late 50s, were mass-trialled uh, through uh, the Wistar Institute in, in Philadelphia, in, uh, in what was then Belgian Congo, now Democratic Republic of Congo, in Burundi, in Rwanda. Rwanda. Millions of, of people were, were trialled with oral polio vaccines through the uh, colonial control of the bodies of, uh, of, of colonised Africans. Actually, this is, you know, this is a really dirty secret of modern medicine. Modern medicine has a huge history of deep intertwining with uh, colonial history. Uh, it's not, and it was true with a whole range of, you know, cordon sanitaire, the kind of actual segregation according to potential illness. You know, these were colonial policies. Mm. Uh, the historian of medicine, Florence Bernot, uh, wrote a fantastic essay about this in 2020, looking at the relationship between those colonial policies and colonial histories of medicine and what was happening with COVID. So to say that this is political, this is about history, this is about economics, there's nothing new in that analysis, actually. There should be absolutely nothing new in that, because that is the bread and butter of colonial history and colonial histories of medicine. It really is. This should simply be preaching to the converted. Now, the reason why that analysis seemed to depart the field when it came to uh, what happened in 2020 in the left, as you say, you know, how did, how did these kind of things happen? Well, we look at that in the book, and, and that seems to, to us to be related to the polarisation which had taken place in the preceding decade uh, around uh, issues which Thomas has already discussed, you know, Trump, Brexit, uh, the fact that 2020 was a US election year uh, mm -hmm. and the way in which that became a political fault line. But let's also remember that the figures on the critical left in in the particularly in the non-English speaking world and, and, and governments on that uh, took different positions. Nicaragua, internationalist leftist government, it was the only country in the Americas not to lock down. Uh, Sweden, you know, famous Sweden, which, uh, you know, uh, people in the, writing the Guardian fascist Observer Sweden. were talking about fascists, <laughs> you know, actually was governed by a left-wing coalition in 2020. So, you know, some of this has, has been, I think, not exactly misrepresented, but exaggerated. You know, there certainly were elements of the left which did follow a different perspective. But I think, you know, I think that fundamental polarisation of the previous 10 years, which, you know, personally, you know, as I said, you know, Thomas and I don't agree on everything, uh, you know, I see to do with the nature of the internet, uh, the way in which the internet and the algorithms of the internet, and let's remember that the code of the internet is a digital binary code, which to zero one, uh, creates polarization, creates actually radicalization through that. And that is what led, I think, to the way in which the left departed the critical field in 2020, in much of the Anglophone world at least. That's a kind of a get get out answer, you know. If in doubt, blame Mark Zuckerberg and and Trump, which is which is bizarrely what the left were doing as they were retreating the critical. Well, field. I call it an explanation, not a get out answer. <laughs> but you know, that's well. Look, maybe I'm just desperate for us to start talking about conspiracies. Some conspiracy theories yeah. are generally accepted, right? Yeah. I, mean, I come from a country where it's generally accepted the government, you know, played a role in much of the terrorist waves and bombing bombings in the 1960s and 70s. It's called yeah. strategy of tension. There are dozens of books written about it, and it's now an accepted historical 
historical fact. So I'm especially surprised that Italians turned so easily against the notion that actually, you know, uh, elites and governments may actually conspire to, uh, to, to reach their aims. But so Let's try to pose this as a question, because the word conspiracy means a whole bunch of different things. First, we have this idea that there is coordination between governments and tech companies, governments and pharma companies. So that idea has behind it both evidence and debunking. And that idea has been called conspiratorial, but it's also just been dismissed as simple coordination. You know, there's no there's no problem with business and governments coordinating. The World Economic Forum tells us that this is what it's for. So that's one level of conspiracy. And the other conspiracy, which is probably the one that um, you know Twitter might have might have treated to you more recently, which is that your analysis is in it on of itself conspiratorial. So rather than accuse Google and Pfizer of conspiring to 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 move events into some others, you are trying to create an alternative understanding of facts. And of course, you've already admitted to that in, 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 in as much as we, we have know, an alternative that, narrative. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So how do, we, how do we, for our own sanity, try to unpack these two different ways of thinking about the universe and the role of conspiracy in it? The first thing is, you know, yeah, I think the difference between coordination and conspiracy is really important. It's something we talk about in the book. Yeah. So conspiracy requires secrecy. In its definition, conspiracy is mm. a secret. You know, and as you say, coordination is a different thing. And a lot of what we talk about in the book, in fact, m the vast majority of what we talk about in the book is not conspiracy. It is an open public domain. You know, this is all open to public domain. We have done research. It's published. As you say, the World Economic Forum is no secret. It's an open statement of fact that the world's richest people and members of the most important governments meet regularly. And they do so to determine what they think mm -hmm. might be the best political frameworks, policy options, and then they try to enforce them. And that's just a statement of fact. You know, there really is nothing conspiratorial about that. And that is the main uh, framework of analysis that we have in the book. I think there's a really interesting difference between left and right. And actually, Shinetra Gupta said this recently. That's how capital works. Capital mm. works through trying to concentrate itself Try, trying to create accumulation on the one hand, concentration on the other hand, and also to and, and that favors uh, favors monopolies. It's been the role of government in uh, Western democracies in the last fifty or sixty years to regulate that, to try and make sure that that doesn't create a world of monopolies and a world where that capital is accumulated to a degree which becomes unhealthy. Mm -hmm. That's a normal standard leftist critique, that that's how capital works. Yeah. And that's the kind of critique we develop in the book. It's actually a critique on the right to say, oh, that's conspiracy. These people are conspiring together somehow to cut me out. You know, you see conspiracy because, you know, but that's how capital works. I don't see a conspiracy. I see a coordination. <laughs> that's how capital works. So there's really nothing conspiratorial about that at all. It's simply a statement of fact. That's how capital works. That's what a leftist critique should be, to try and make sure that capital doesn't do that in a way which becomes unhealthy, which, as we show in the book, it has done. Honestly, I think it's a pretty uh, heavy indictment for the contemporary left that one has to actually explain and justify the idea that maybe, you know, big capital and corporations have an excessive influence over governments. I mean, seriously, because this is what we're talking about. Honestly, this used to be a staple of left critique. Again, you know, I go back to, you know, the early 2000s when capital was way less powerful than it is now. And, you know, you had, I mean, Naomi Klein's arguments, you know, no logo, the growing sure. power of, of transnational corporations. There was that wonderful documentary called The Corporation about, you know, the massive power that corporations were acquiring in Western capitalism. 
I mean, the notion of uh, corporate capture. I mean, this was kind of basic understanding on the left of how kind of, you know, uh, neoliberal capitalism works. And so the idea that, for example, you know, big pharma and pharmaceutical corporations such as Pfizer, which happen to be some of the richest and most powerful corporations in the world, might have used that influence to push the pandemic response in a direction favorable to, uh, to, to them. I mean, Seriously, is that such a radical statement right, to make? I, I think what will be interesting to do is try to apply some of these leftist staples of critique to the situation mm. as you described it. And, mm. and I want to in particular, again, ask you to pick a couple of examples of your vast body of evidence, all the citations you make, the studies that you've read, the, you know, the news articles that you refer to. If you could bring a couple of those that stray away from the narrative that maybe the narrative as we remember it, so that we can try to see where this kind of consensus that is uncritical starts seeping in. What what is it that the left started missing in particular? Everything. I mean, I mean, that's just such an extraordinary question. I mean, okay, let's take a, let's take an example which bridges actually Thomas's, you know, research interests and background and mine. Ebola. Okay, Ebola epidemic in Sierra Leone and Liberia, 2014-2015, which you know, most people listening to this will, will remember. It was thought to be a serious potential threat, not only, of course, mm -hmm. in, in, in West Africa, but actually around the world. Uh, so in the first place, there was a lockdown implemented in Sierra Leone and Liberia for three days. So I actually interviewed the, the, somebody who became, after this, a deputy director of Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders in Spain, and she was working in Freetown during Ebola and talked about how, you know, at the time, Médecins Sans Frontières warned against the imposition of a lockdown. They thought it wouldn't be effective, it would be counterproductive, and it would create a lack of trust in medical authorities. Mm -hmm. Subsequent academic research confirmed that, particularly in the context of Africa, where 85% of people work in the informal economy, it's a complete catastrophe to close, uh, to close societies and economies in the way that was attempted. Not only that, but of course, Given the large number of informal settlements around the, in poor countries, you know, people often spend a lot of their time outside. This was a virus which spent much worse inside, confining people inside is completely unscientific, in fact. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then you have the impact in the West of Ebola. So one of the things that, you know, Thomas added late in the draft was something I haven't been aware of, that um, uh, in America, discussions arose as to whether people who returned from Sierra Leone, people medical staff who returned from Syria and Liberia should be quarantined. And at the time, both Democrats and Republicans began to say, well, maybe there should be, mm. I think it was Chris Christie, and uh, uh, it, who was governor of New Jersey and the governor of New York, I can't remember. One was a Democrat, one was a Republican. Cuomo, was it? Cuomo. One of the, you know, they should be quarantined. And then a figure like Fauci said it was a little bit draconian to consider yeah. quarantining people who, uh, you know, on the risk that they might be contagious with Ebola. Now, Ebola is a condition which has an infection fatality rate of between 50 and 90 percent. You cannot, simply cannot compare it to COVID. So this was the reality in 2015. So what had changed, you know, five years later to then think that universal quarantines should be rolled out? that suddenly the lockdowns which Médecins Sans Frontières and medical professionals decided hadn't worked and had been counterproductive in West Africa during Ebola, which had a much higher infection fatality rate, should suddenly be rolled out around the world. I mean, it's so glaring. You know, what, what had been missed? Everything. I mean, yeah, I think there are so many examples, you know, of the entire vaccine 
development and rollout, I think, was uh, an example in gross kind of fraud and corruption, you know, where the, basically the public, you know, entirely funded these uh, vaccines, fast tracked them, you know, at, on a degree that had never, you know, was never, had never been seen before in, in history, were approved at regulatory, at regulatory level, you know, with record speed, you know, with regulatory bodies not even reading you know thousands of pages that were provided by the uh, you know from the clinical trials that were provided from the companies and just kind of you know just rolled out these vaccines and not not only you know not, not focusing on the vaccines on who actually needed them but you know enforcing kind of you know blanket mass vaccination while allowing the companies to to keep the, the, the patents to the vaccines mm -hmm. that had been almost entirely publicly funded. Uh, not just that, it also allowed the, the pharmaceutical corporations to uh, be given full indemnification from any uh, adverse effects or adverse events that might arise from the vaccines. They also allowed the uh, pharmaceutical companies to set the price for these vaccines that had been almost entirely uh, developed uh, with uh, public funding, and then proceeded to help these companies make a, 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 a humongous amounts of money uh, by signing yeah. often contracts with these companies that to this day are still uh, secret in, in many cases. In some cases, as in the case of uh, Ursula von der Leyen's uh, um, 1.8 billion dose ag agreement done with Pfizer, these agreements were done via text messages between um, Ursula and uh, Berla, the CEO of Pfizer. I mean, if any of this seems normal, then honestly, uh, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know what to say. But I think more, more in general, there's the question of censorship. I mean, we now know, we're no fat necessary fans of Elon Musk, but I think uh, credit has to be given to him for uh, what he's you know, helping to reveal through the Twitter files. And what's coming out is pretty astonishing. That is the US government in particular and various federal agencies uh, colluding with pharmaceutical companies, with Pfizer, and the big tech companies to essentially micromanage the information that was put out uh, regarding vaccines and lockdowns and so on to the point of, and we now have even kind of black and white admissions on that through um, uh, foyer emails, uh, including of what they described factually true uh, information. So they acknowledged that a lot of the kind of critical uh, stuff that people were putting out or were putting out was not necessarily false. It wasn't misinformation. It wasn't disinformation. And in fact, what we now know is proving that much of what was caught, described as conspiracy regarding masks, lockdowns, vaccine efficacy, vaccine adverse events, and so on, is in fact turning out to be um, to be true. They knew a lot of that to be true, and nonetheless, they proceeded to censor it. Uh, and again, you see this kind of blatant, uh, you know, collusion between the, the corporate and the other kind of the big farm on one and big tech on one hand and, uh, and governments on, on the other. I mean, it's almost an intertwining of corporate and state interests. And there's another, you know, important thing you, you mentioned earlier, Pierre, you know, like um, people, you know, it's now time to move on. Why do people want to move on? Well, one I of those joking. Yeah, one of the responses that people have to a bad memory is generally amnesia, you know. And, you know, I think there is an enormous psychological element of that. So that, let's look at the vaccines again then. And, you know, the Omicron variant uh, coming to fall in 20, December 2021. Now, in the UK, where we're recording this interview, you know, the government said encouraged everybody over the age of 18 should go and get the booster mm -hmm. to protect. It provides good protection. The headlines where, you know, Pfizer says that the the vaccine provides good protection against the Omicron booster. Yet, no new research had been done. No new tests had been done 
to see whether the, the vaccine which had been developed for the initial COVID variant provided any protection at all against no new tests have been done whatsoever. Uh, and in fact, you know, now people talk about the variant boosters, variant proof boosters. Finally, some tests have been done on eight mice. Uh, and uh, now we have a variant proof booster a year later. But at the time the government was giving this information, given these instructions, there had been no research done. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. And, and so this is a kind of psychological warfare is the only word I can use to describe it, yeah. where uh, people are receiving, you know, what can only be described as propaganda about, you know, the right thing to do. This is how you protect yourself and your family. But it was completely anti-science. That's the whole point. You know, we say this is a question of science. That Well, that has to be a question of politics and economics. That is not a question of science because that's not how science sure. is conducted. So I have, I have a couple of questions that, that come from the example of vaccines, which I think, you know, under the, the label of anti-vax probably gets people on the whole, still quite quite highly exercised. I wonder how you've developed thoughts about the role of the individual in, in this political quagmire. I remember having so many conversations with my own position changing with time, with people mm. who would you know, say things like, look, but if you can save my grandma, then of course you will take the risk. There comes a point at which I can figure out that even that kind of statement is one that could, to a certain extent, be scientific. But of course, it isn't scientific because it is beyond the capability of any one individual. And I think governments have been in the admission of rather washing their hands of responsibility would say, we didn't know, we had to, we went on the facts as we knew them at the time. So there's absolutely no way in which any individual could be expected to evaluate risks of those types of complexity. So how do we start thinking about the individual's role as a political subject? First of all, the government says that these were the facts as they knew them at the time. That's completely false. That's false. The government now says that nobody ever said that the vaccine prevented transmission. Deborah Burks, very senior figure in the Coronavirus Task Force, was on record saying, you know, she never thought the vaccines would prevent transmission. Well, you know, as you've just said, you know, that doesn't make sense of all of the messaging and news that people received in 2021. So that's just a state, that's just false. You know, and, and in fact, there are the, 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 the very senior scientific figures have actually confirmed that it's false. And that's as part of the psychological warfare that, that the humans are, are, are faced with all of this. I think on the point of the role of the individual, I'll just say something briefly. You know, I think um, we've come under fire actually for saying that we do think there could be a role for vaccine mandates mm. in some cases. So it's not that we're anti-vaccine. In fact, one of the critiques of the book is in poor countries that uh, the focus on COVID vaccines actually harmed existing vaccine programmes. So there are those kinds of issues. But I think, of course, a collective response can be part of medicine, can be part of science, but it has to be a collective response which is grounded in, in procedures which are, not, which are not corrupted by corporations and which follow long-established protocols of safety. And that's what was failing here. The whole description of what happened as... Uh... You know, in terms of people's responses as one of individualism versus kind of a more collective response, I think is just complete, um, complete hogwash. I think what, what you had was the majority of people that simply passively accepted everything that the government told them about, you know, whether it was vaccines or lockdowns or masks or, or whatever. There was nothing collective about that. I mean, that was that was the essence of depoliticization. You know, I mean, that was the passivization. You see, I, you see I disagree with you about that, Thomas. I don't, of, of, I don't, I don't think it was passive. I think many people didn't have an alternative. You know, take a, a, an older person living on their own 
they're receiving all this information, telling them how they need to behave. Their entire ecosystem has gone online and everybody's, you know, no, it's I mean, a very... It's I, a very... I, don't, I don't mean to blame those that, you know, were overwhelmed by what you rightly described as a form of psychological warfare. I'm not blaming the individual people that truly believed that what they were being told was true or, was, or again, were simply overwhelmed because it was, I mean, it was scary. And again, this is one aspect, I think, that makes the pandemic. Uh, on the one hand, as Toby said, you know, and I said earlier too as well, I mean, there are elements of continuity with previous events, uh, like, you know, government censorship and the fact that the mainstream media, media tends to be biased. You know, I mean, this, you know, used to be, you are, again, recognize that. Recognized <laughs> that by the left, you know. Iraq the, war, anybody? The New York Times don't always yeah. tell the truth. And again, the, the Iraq war, I think, is a pretty good example of that. Um, but again, what we, you know, the kind of narrative control that we saw during the pandemic was something we had never seen before. I mean, the emergence of this single totalizing narrative that allowed for not even the slightest deviation from the orthodox, from the dominant narrative was astonishing. I mean, it's something that, you know, I think we had never witnessed before in, in the West. And I think it was to all intents and purposes. I mean, the, the kind of information that you expect, I mean, totalitarian countries to, to have. I mean, it was, uh, you know, the slightest uh, nonconformist opinion was not just excluded. It was, you know, aggressively attacked and demonized. Uh, you know, people lost their jobs, lives were ruined, you know, for people that were simply, simply were trying to maybe point out, you know, the different options were, were available. And again, uh, you know, this was complete control, full spectrum control of the narrative offline and online. So I think that's also what makes, you know, COVID uh, different in terms to previous, you know, states of emergency, you know, where of course government propaganda was already employed. But I think social media played a crucial role because we are so immersed now in, in information, you know, through our, our cell phones and our computers, you know, in this information flow that if anyone is capable of controlling that flow of information, they would, act, you know, effectively be able to kind of superimpose a, a simulacrum of, of reality over actual reality. And I think, and so in this sense, I think, you know, the as, world, Baudrillard, the world, as Baudrillard wrote the, about in the 1990s. Yeah, this used to be, yeah exactly. I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm just, exactly. I'm just, I'm no. just copying the, you know, the opinion of, of a respected um, leftist philosopher. Leftist philosopher. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and, and so I think this, that, that was a rather astonishing as well. But, um, but again, going back to the question of the individual, I mean, I think the notion that those that resisted these policies were doing it out, you know, of an, of an individualistic drive. I mean, I, I would, I would completely turn that around. I mean, the only collective responses that we saw, the only political responses that we saw uh, throughout the pandemic came from the anti-lockdown movements, came from yeah. the, uh, you know, quote unquote, anti-vax movements. And so these were people, these weren't people acting alone. These weren't like lone gunmen that, you know, armed themselves and, and tried to kill Fauci. I mean, these were people that organized politically, that organized demonstrations, in some cases, massive demonstrations. And so the idea that, you know, tens of thousands of people marching in the street Hundreds uh, of thousands. Are, yeah. you know, could be described as, as an example of individualism. It's just a complete overturning of, of reality. And the idea and the notion that that was individualistic because people were trying to defend you know, their bodily autonomy, their health. Well, isn't any political action ultimately based <laughs> on the idea of, I want to better my condition. I want to have better, you know, I want to have a better pay. I want to have better health care. I mean, it, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the whole working class movement was uh, made up of single individuals that wanted to better their own conditions, but realized that they could only do that through collective action, which is what, in many ways, we saw uh, during the pandemic. You know, people coming together and organizing through collective action for what they believed was, was right. I mean, so I think that's, so that 
was a, I mean, that was it's a shame you haven't got that in the book, but that's a really great observation. Well, you, do yeah. have, you do have something else in the book that I want to move on to, which I think is incredibly important. So the second part of the volume is uh, concerned with the outcomes of the consensus and the various interventions that governments deploy throughout the world. And mm. it's a story of rampant inequality at the level of class, at the level of ethnicity, but also at the level of nationality at scales. I was pretty naive over the last couple of years, just to the horrendous disparities that mm. the unified responses have produced. Mm. And I think just kind of as a way to, to stick it to anyone who's still sceptical of the need for a materialist left critique of what mm. has happened, I think it would be great if you could, Toby, run us through some of the more egregious <sighs> I mean, it's, it's hard to do so because it's so awful. You know, children are not allowed out of their homes in the Philippines for 19 months. You know, what does that mean in a country like the Philippines with an authoritarian leader like Duterte? Yeah. In Angola for seven months, you know, where half of the country lives in informal housing. Schools closed in Honduras for two years. Four and a half million school children lost to education in Uganda. Huge increases in child marriage, prostitution, uh, huge increases in child labour. Uh, the complete savaging of the informal economy on which the vast majority of the world actually depends so that 18 months later, three quarters of the people surveyed in a, in, in a report suggested that they still hadn't recovered half of their earnings. In a study in Uttar Pradesh published by Reuters uh, from July 2021, 75% of the rural households in eight communes examined have lost three quarters of their income. And this is in a context where, you know, for decades, social scientists have known that there's, particularly in low-income countries, a huge correlation between GDP and and life expectancy. So in, in, in wealthier countries, if you increase GDP, it doesn't make much difference to life expectancy. In poor countries, if you, if, if you increase GDP, it makes a huge difference to life expectancy. So... You know, this unbelievable abdication of critical thinking to say you can separate health and the economy so neatly, you know, is uh, really, I, I don't think I can ever forgive uh, the liberal left for, for that, because it really has led to the most catastrophic outcomes around the world. Bobby really do seem to have made that separation, because you know, the, the UK's economic woes today are all down to, to Putin, as far as you, you, could, you could see in the media, no? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, and, and, well, I mean, we can get on to that. I mean, you know, the narrative around, you know, for example, let's look at inflation, you know, inflation caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Well, you know, as we show in the book, you know, there is, you know, strong evidence from all kinds of different sources uh, of huge increases of, infl of inflation up, up to a year before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In fact, Reuters ran a piece in July 2021 about uh, infl the impact of inflation around the world, you know. A, a year and a quarter after the lockdowns began, you know, you know, the, the invasion of Ukraine was, you know, wasn't wasn't even in a, on anybody's radar. So, actually, you know, we have to be clear that the rupturing of supply chains, the destruction of harvests when people weren't allowed to go and uh, mm -hmm. to go into the fields in, in many countries, you know, all of this uh, was at the start of the economic crisis that we're now facing. Yeah, and I would just add that again, the idea that this wasn't predictable is. It's just a complete lie. I mean, there are countless reports from very early on in the pandemic. You know, we're talking March, April 2020 yeah. from UN departments, uh, you know, WFP, uh, International Labour Organization, and, you know, I mean, you name it. And they were all warning against the, you know, devastating impacts the lockdowns were bound to have, especially in developing countries. So no one can say this wasn't expected, this wasn't known. It was perfectly obvious, just, you know, 
you know, through common sense. Uh, but in fact, you know, there had been predictions from the highest, you know, international bodies uh, in the world that this would have disastrous consequences and people would die as a result of lockdowns. And, and the lockdowns would have a way more damaging effect than COVID uh, would ever be able to have, especially in countries such as, or in continents such as Africa, which were uh, bound to have to suffer relatively lightly from COVID, you know, from, you know, as a result of the very low median age, as a result of the, of the warm climate and so on, which is exactly what, you know, events have borne out. And so um, it was it was clear from the start that these measures, you know, were, were bound to have, uh, you know, I mean, the, 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 you know, much, much heavier consequences than than COVID itself, which is exactly what uh, what has happened. But, you know, I mean, it, it, they had been warned about this. So they had, they you know, you know it's no clear. They, they you know, the UNDP issued a report in March 2020, <laughs> end of March 2020, half of the jobs in Africa could be lost, formal jobs in Africa could be lost because of this. Well, And what's interesting, though, is that in, in some ways the challenges faced in low-income and high-income countries have become structurally more aligned. Mm -hmm. So in terms of health outcomes, for example, the core diseases in, in richer countries, heart disease, cancer, which went untreated, we're now seeing the impacts of that. It's the same in poorer countries. The core diseases which went untreated because of the massive focus on COVID, the exclusion of other things meant that, you know, regular routine vaccine programmes were put on hold and still were on hold in some countries last year. So, you know, this is actually, it shows a kind of structural, a growing structural alignment in terms of the relationship between governments and populations around the world, in fact, in many ways. Yeah. I want to go back to the resistance to this critique being played out in, in, in the open, whether your version of the critique or any other type of critique. And I'm, I will try to get you to address some of the criticism that the writer Richard Seymour leveled at the book um, on a podcast recently, link in the show notes, go and go and have fun, everyone. The kind of thing I got, got from him is the, the same question that we opened with, what is it? What is this for? Who is this? this critique, this kind of post-mortem going to, to help. In fact, in fact, that's a question about the, the value, mm. the, the, the purpose of critique in, in general. What can we hope to be better prepared for with the knowledge that our states are exactly as callous as we could have expected them to be and that capital, lo and behold, is in out for itself and the cost of human life is essentially pretty pretty trivial to those shocking manifestations. <laughs> so look, we, we'll be shocked. And that that's a question that you've, you've sort of already addressed, but I'm, I'm trying to also find a way to get into the denial that, that, that Seymour, for instance, produced. You know, he says at one point, nobody really advocated for lockdowns, which I found kind of laughable because I, it's, you know, it's three minutes Google work to find quite a lot of yeah. pro-lockdown. Pro, pro or it wasn't, writing. I suppose, is, is that really, you know, there wasn't a proper lockdown. I'm not sure if that's what the narrative would be in that. So what is the argument? If you're allowed to leave the house for, you know, to, to, to go shopping for 10 minutes, then it's not a lockdown. Unless you're being well then inside your home, it's not an actual lockdown. I mean, that's ridiculous. Well, look, Sweden is one of the places where this this argument always plays out. We've already mentioned this, but Sweden did not lock down. Sweden had, my argument very early on, Sweden is just one of those countries that has quite high levels of social trust. If you tell people, don't cough into each other's faces, they will generally think about that quite carefully. That's not to say that the rest of the world is completely uncivilized, but, you know, there are differences. And that's one of the... But I mean, that's a really important point, Pierre. You've, you've hit the nail on the head there, you know. I mean, the idea that the lockdown was going to, and we, we touched on this in the book, was incredible naive that it's the only factor 
which, you know, there are so many other factors, other conditions of public health, public health spending, social conditions of where, how people live, which is why, you know, the lockdown has a completely different impact in areas of cramped housing, where if you've got intergenerational households, actually shutting people together might be counterproductive, as proved to be the case in, in many places. So the point that there are other factors to bear in mind, and that's often given as, an, as a reason why Sweden, you know, didn't have the catastrophic outcomes predicted, uh, but that's the whole point. It's amazingly naive and, and completely unscientific to think that this is the golden bullet which will solve all, all public health problems. Yeah, I mean, I think we're often asked, you know, what oh, what, what could the alternatives have been, you know? But I mean, I think that the assumption in that question is wrong. The assumption is that lockdowns more or less worked. I mean, they may have had, you know, a, you know negative knock-on effects and collateral you know, damage and negative long-term effects. But, you know, they did help in stopping the spread of COVID, but there's not even any clear evidence of that. I mean, even the correlation between the severity of measures and the severity of lockdowns and hospitalization and mortality levels is not clear at all. I mean, some Absolutely some of the countries that clear. had the hardest lockdowns, such as my country, Italy, but even countries like Peru have some of the highest mortality South rates Africa. and countries that had yeah. the laxest, some that had very lax attitudes, such as Sweden, but not just Sweden, other countries as well. Nicaragua, you quoted Nicaragua um, earlier, have a very low mortality rate. So, I mean, the, I, I would say the burden is on the, you know, on the supporters of lockdown to prove that lockdowns worked even insofar as yeah. the reduction of the spread of COVID is, is concerned. And again, you know, it's, it's, on many levels, it's common sense, as, as, as Toby was hinting at. I mean, in, you know, in Italy, my country, what happened when they closed down the schools was that anyone that had a small kid, such as myself and my wife, we moved in with uh, our parents, uh, you know, so they could help out with the kids mm -hmm. while we were continuing to uh, remote work. Um, so that means that we were exposing, you know, our elderly parents to, to the virus much more than they would have otherwise been exposed, even if just if they'd, if they'd been allowed to uh, spend as much time as possible outdoors, which clearly would have been the safest place to be. And so you can see the incoherence and kind of irrationality of a lot of these of a lot of these policies. I mean, and then we can decide you know, if to go into that. But when we talk of deaths and death counts, yeah. I mean, this we it's not just about you know whether lockdowns work or not or didn't work. There are so many factors that went into uh, yes, causing right. these deaths. And it's not just pre-existing kind of underinvestment in public uh, health services. That was clearly uh, that a was, That was one of, the, one of the responses I think I've seen quite a lot. You know, the UK did what it did because the Tories have decimated the NHS for 10 years yeah, prior, that, which of course... That's kind of the responsible left argument. I think there's an element of that from my perspective. You know, I think it's interesting the Nicaraguan case, to come back to that one, is an interesting one. You know, why did Nicaragua... Why was Nicaragua a success? Well, people in Nicaragua say it's because they'd spent the previous 10 years under the Ortega government with a massive investment in public health. They'd built 23 really top quality hospitals, which for a country of 6 million is quite a lot. Uh, they had health brigades on the Cuban model going around. They made 5 million house visits to a population of 6 million in the first four months of the pandemic. They had invested. And, and you know, clearly, the public health investment of that kind, not of the kind which simply gives massive profits to pharmaceutical corporations, is is important from, from a left perspective. Yeah, clearly austerity is, is important. But I think the idea that therefore we had, therefore we had to lock down, you know, that's just nonsensical. And it, it's nonsensical because it was, an, it was a completely new policy, as we show in the book. Uh, it had never been rolled out anywhere around the world on a national framework until Italy implemented one on March the 9th, 2020. Uh, but also because health has got so many complex factors. You know, there was a study in 2015, loneliness increases the risk of death by 25%. So what is 
the public health benefit of making so many people isolated. Yeah, I mean, I think even if lockdowns had proven beyond any beyond doubt, you know, capable of stopping the spread of COVID, I think that, you know, I mean, the overall effect would definitely be on the negative side. And so I think they would still be unjustifiable, even if they had dramatically low, lowered COVID deaths, because, you know, I mean, the only, you know, the actual number that matters is excess deaths. So how many people died more compared to the pre-pandemic average? And, and, and when you look at those numbers, the effects of lockdowns are even more damning. And I think that was that was always going to be inevitable. And so I think even if they had functioned very well in stopping the spread of the virus, which they didn't in many cases, I think uh, they still would have been completely unjustifiable because the knock-on effects would have been still completely see, And then there are the economic questions. You know, there's been so many studies done before the pandemic on the relationship between inequality and health outcomes. We know that countries which are more unequal have worse health outcomes. And we also knew before the pandemic that the internet was a, uh, was a structure which favoured monopoly of capital. So, in fact, turning everything into an online space could only have one outcome, which is an increase in inequality. So this is not caused by the pandemic. It's caused by that policy choice. And that is a policy choice. Uh, and so inequality uh, is clearly and bad public health is clearly related to the lockdown. Yeah, but I also think more in general, I mean, there are aspects of the COVID protocol that have to be talked about. You know, beyond everything that we said clearly played a role, but I think there are other aspects that people are less comfortable talking about because from very early on, the orthodox uh, narrative has associated any talk of this with conspiracy theories and all oh, right, uh, you know, nutcases. But in fact, we need to ask ourselves, why was any form of, uh, you know, early therapy or, you know, yeah, um, com- completely discussed discouraged and in fact demonized when very early on there were scientists all over the world that were saying look there are um, medicines that we're experimenting with that are, you know, dramatically lowering hospitalization and death rates in some cases by 80, 90 percent, you know, I mean, allow us to ch- test them out. I mean, after all, I mean, we're talking of elderly people that we know are dying, you know, in... in, in... Just to be too sure, you're not advocating for Invermectin here, are you? It's another drug. No, here. I think we're advocating for research. We're advocating for research. There simply wasn't any proper investigation done into early therapies, and that's criminal. You know, this was a disease which was killing lots of people. And instead of advoc- instead of conducting any research into early treatments, the only res- only treatments which were authorised were late-stage treatments, remdesivir, for example, which cost over $3,000 for a single round of treatment. I mean, it's quite incredible that somehow you're labelled to be a granny killer because you think that you should investigate early treatments and not necessarily take the vaccine option, which makes vast profits for multinationals. Now... As we show in the book, you know, one of the real issues is that the emergency authorization for vaccines wouldn't have been allowed if early treatments had been shown to be effective. And, you know, you simply cannot look at this question without asking, is that a coincidence? And again, it makes people uncomfortable to talk, for example, of uh, chloroquine, you know, but I mean, it's been there are countless studies that show that it is effective in reducing COVID hospitalization and death rates. And it's, 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 what, it's, it's, re- it's relatively widely used. In, and, and not only in that, African, it was widely used. Not only that, the study which countries. was supposed to have debunked it I mean, was later, a, that's astonishing. was later admitted by everybody, including the Lancet and the Guardian as one of the biggest frauds in scientific history. The Lancet, that, I mean, they published, 
published it was a, a paper you know essentially showing that chloroquine not only uh, didn't prevent deaths but in fact it doubled uh, death rates and this was proven to be completely false I and mean, based on completely invented data and this was by a, a, a quote-unquote study published in what's considered the most important medical journal in the world the lancet which as toby was saying later admitted to, to it had been probably you know, one of the biggest frauds in medical uh, history but again we can't it's hard to see this just as a mistake that was made in good faith by some you know researchers it's hard not to see this uh, you know it's clearly you know there was a decision was made that you know these therapies had to be demonized uh, because otherwise you wouldn't get the emergency use it would have been very hard because the whole lockdown narrative was based on the idea of there is no therapy whatsoever. No therapies work. Thus, we can only, well, we're only going to get out of this once the vaccine is ready. Hence, we have to lock down until the vaccine is ready. I mean, this is, you know, this is what we call, you know, it's a single narrative, you know, and it all holds together. And if the early, if the effectiveness of uh, some early therapies, and it's not just chloroquine, I mean, there's countless early therapies that in fact were widely used in China very early on with quite good results, um, had proven to be effective, it would have been much harder to, uh, I would say, to push through the Well, well in fact, you can't. I mean, I mean the, the, the legislation, ready. the regulation shows... And in fact, you, you wouldn't have been able to... The uh, regulation shows you can't get you emergency use authorization for mm -hmm. a novel treatment without, if there is an appropriate treatment available. So it's as simple as that. And again, there's another question which... I think it's probably one of the most astonishing aspects of uh, especially the first wave in terms of deaths, and that's the issue of ventilators. I mean, the, it became the consensus that uh, anyone that was admitted to uh, an ICU with uh, you know, COVID-related respiratory problems had to be placed on a mechanical ventilator. And it became clear very on that pretty much anyone that was placed on a ventilator died. Oh, nine, you know, and, uh, on average, nine people out of 10 that were placed on ventilators died. Uh, these were much, much higher death rates, you know, from from, from what you would expect from from ventilators, uh, even on people with, you know, serious uh, pulmonary conditions. There were medics that came out, you know, and said, look, you're telling you know, the protocol yeah. is telling yeah. us to use mechanical ventilators on people, but everyone we place on a mechanical ventilator dies and died not because of the virus. They died specifically. I mean, some of them might have died anyway, but I mean, I, a huge percentage of them died because of the medical protocol that was put in place, and this was this lasted months. I mean, I think, it was know, only abandoned in the second wave. I mean, I think the thing so, is, you know, there's, for, me, for me, for me, you know, there, there, there's various elements going on. I think there is an institutional crisis framework there, and 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 you know, the institutions were in crisis. People weren't communicating effectively because they were working remotely. I would see it from that lens. Uh, you know, I think the medical the medical professionals were upset. They tried to fight against it. That was the protocol coming from government. Government sometimes acts slowly, and, and I think the fundamental issue is that. This was a this was a distraction from the fundamental f framework which the government had, which, as we show in the book, is the relation between lockdowns and vaccines, and that was what they were really interested in. That was why you know that might be something that they wouldn't get to. Yeah, but regardless of the question of why they did that, you know, why they ignored all these warnings, that's the question of accountability. Well, yes. I mean, someone yeah. has to be held accountable for maintaining a protocol that people were warning against very early on of killing, you know, very, very high numbers. People who were sick from uh, COVID. People who were sick from COVID. I mean, someone someone has to be held accountable in court Look, for this. How, my how do you think that's going, going to play out? Because we're at a point in, in the kind of post-COVID scenarios in which... Books like yours are going to start popping up. There's already been a couple. There's plenty of literature that waxes lyrical about the suffering of the middle classes during COVID. Yes, We've got to a point where we have some legal processes like inquiries. I presume there are others around the world, not just in the UK. These things 
you know, tend to rarely bring people to court. It's not like yeah. we, we're going to have Nuremberg, despite Twitter's occasional calls for it. Yeah. And I kind of wonder what, what, how you see the kind of strategic positioning of your critique and who you want to engage with it beyond just kind of clearing, well, I mean, clearing the record. I think we probably have slightly different, you know, views on that. You know, my fundamental view is that, and this has structured my entire approach to how I've tried to develop discussions about this, however, you know, fleeting those have been, is, you know, that the liberal class in the Western world is a powerful class. Mm. Uh, it has disproportionate power. It was very much behind the single narrative. And in order for there to be a change in future crises, the liberal class will have to consider alternative narratives and will have to be brought to do that, and, and, and in, but enabled to do that in a way which doesn't make itself feel under complete attack and as if it behaved in shocking bad faith. That's not entirely easy, but it does mean, I think, that and for me, uh, it does but... mean for me, you know, that, that fundamentally, I don't think there will be a change in outlook unless that happens. And so, you know, Thomas and I have slightly different approaches to that, but my approach is that's my goal. Yeah, I mean, I think more in general, I mean, I consider the kind of, you know, left-right dichotomy to be, uh, you know, pretty much obsolete, uh, if anything, because uh, what what is considered to be left uh, or right nowadays has very little relation to what, you know, those terms have historically Class uh, and capital. meant, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, there's almost no relation whatsoever to what those terms used to mean. Um, so, and so in this, you know, hyper-polarizing and polarized um, context, I think, uh, you know, the, the notions of left and right have become very uh, effective ways of uh, dividing the population, basically, you know, by just, uh, so it's very easy for elites to remain in power by simply, uh, you know, telling half the population that whatever, you know, anti-establishment leader well, were to come along is either, you know, a far left or far right, you're going to ensure that that person's never going to be able to get into power, regardless of what, you know, their actual positions are. Um, and so I think trying to overcome this kind of, you know, completely um, obsolete, in my opinion, left-right dichotomy is what is is, is is part of the kind of political slash cultural work that I guess we're trying to do with magazines such as Compact and, and others, you know, trying to develop, the new, develop a new political framework, a new political compass that goes beyond kind of uh, these uh, the, these terms and more in general, this kind of 20th century understanding of uh, of politics. Uh, and, and I think specifying that ours, that ours is an analysis from the left might seem contradictory, but it's not. Because I think what we're, also, what we're trying to do is to, is to show people both on the left and on the right that, you know, what passes off as, uh, you know, as, 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 has passed off as left, you know, isn't necessarily, uh, isn't necessarily so. Um, it also comes out of the beginnings of our collaboration. You know, mm. Thomas and I, we wrote this article for Unheard in uh, November 2021, the left's COVID failure. And that struck a chord because, you know, it was translated in about 10 languages. Oh. We had lots of letters about it uh, from all kinds of people who just, you know, had felt, you know, people who, you know, like us, felt themselves and feel themselves to be on the left or what used to be understood to be the left in this relationship to class and capital and felt completely unrepresented. That is a constituency and that's a very important fact. That is a constituency. And also, you know, trying to speak to that constituency and say, you know, here is something to give to your family and friends, and 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 not because we want to sell lots of copies of the book, but just because, as I you know, for, as I said, from my point of view, people of people who come from that background have to consider alternative narratives for this not to happen again. 
and to do that, I actually genuinely think they need to read the book, not because we've written it, but just because I haven't seen anything else which provides an alternative narrative of that kind. I wonder if I can just just try to try to bring your two perspectives together and and maybe issue an invitation to Richard Seymour to come back and we could record another half an hour response. Because one of the things he does say that I don't find convincing, but I think lies at the very division of what it is that the leftist critique should do, is that he says criticizing the powerful isn't isn't the critique we should be engaging in. You know, the fact that someone is lying, the capital and the state is lying to you, doesn't mean that you're right. So I think he has a very fundamental divergence from both of you as to, as to what it is that critique should be for. And, and I think it would be good to, to hear from all these perspectives, particularly on this topic, for another five years. I think it's inevitable. I'd rather, I'd rather it happened at a decent level as opposed to... I mean, yeah, to Twitter alone. We're open to talking to anyone. So, I mean, we we proposed the Richard on, uh, on on Twitter to come and have a debate with us, but he never answers. And that's a shame. Fundamentally, people have got to find a common ground again. Actually, I think that is really important. You know, and, and that's not going to happen on Twitter. You know, fundamentally, we've got to have a discussion about it. As Thomas said, we're happy to talk to anybody anytime about the issues in the book, and. Pretty much, well, not any forum, but you know, uh, <laughs> certainly in this forum and in other forums that they might propose. And we offered that to Richard online. Uh, you know, I've, we've offered it to other people like George Monbiot and uh, Owen Jones, and we're waiting for them to have a discussion with us because we think it's it's vital. Actually. I'll buy tickets for one of those at least. So. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, we'd be we'd be more than happy to. But yeah, again, I mean, the issue is not going away because it's not just about. I mean, I think it's about understanding that. COVID consensus ushered in a new paradigm. So it was kind of a quantum leap in this kind of authoritarian management of Western societies. And that's that's there to stay. I mean, yeah. this. I mean, there were deep structural changes that happened uh, during COVID as a result of COVID and, you know, even by exploiting COVID. For example, we're already seeing um, a play in the, in the management vis-a-vis uh, -vis Western societies of the Ukraine crisis, for example. You know, the same imposition of a single totalizing narrative, the same marginalization and demonization of, of all critical voices, um, you know, same form of uh, online censorship. You know, so I think there are, you know, very, very, you know, very similar elements um, at play. You know, the same powerful um, private corporate interests ex exercising uh, an excessive uh, influence over policy. So maybe it was the kind of, you know, tech pharma complex in, in, in the case of COVID. It's more the military industrial complex now, but we still see the same problem of private interests exercising excessive influence over policy, if not actually driving policy. It's, it's the new paradigm that we're in that we uh, that we should be talking about. Uh, we need to talk about it, but I think also, you know, my, my plea to, to Richard Seymour and you know, others, you know, who, who don't like the book is, you know, also I think they need to recover their internationalism. And one of the things I find fascinating in Richard Seymour's critique is he hasn't got anything to say about, you know, the second part of the book. And, you know, the enormous harms which are caused by these policies, particularly in low-income and middle-income countries, let alone in high-income countries, we have absolutely nothing to say about that at all. And, and, and that, that's not good enough. We've got, to, we've, got, we've got to engage with the way in which we now do live in interconnected worlds and we simply can't pretend that, you know, problems in... As when I tried to raise this at a, at a leftist conference in October and was told there's nothing, you know, the pandemic has got nothing to do with poverty, well, you know, that's <laughs> incredible, frankly. But, you know, it's not good enough. That's certainly what it is. In a, in a discipline in which everything is connected to everything, that's a very nice exception to make. It's just the virus is full, you know. <laughs> Nothing to do with the response. Toby, Thomas, thank you so much for, for the conversation, the, the research and the polemic. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks.
The COVID Consensus, The Global Assault on Democracy and the Poor, a Critique from the Left, by Toby Green and Thomas Fatsi, is published by Hearst. I'm Pierre Dolenser. Thanks for listening to Vertrain. Join me next time. Thank you.